we've just finished um, a series of talks in the morning on the gifts of the Spirit and in the evening on the fruit of the Spirit, these um, aspects of being followers of God um, and how they're manifest in our lives, how they actually change us and uh, become um, part of us. And today we're going to start a new book uh, of, the, of the New Testament, which is Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia in those days, part of, part of Greece, I suppose, under the banner or through the lens of authenticity. So we've got a series of talks looking at authentic faith, authentic life, authentic love. And today I want to talk about authentic faith. Just through the, the, the vehicle of this letter that Paul writes to this church. So I want to look at that word first and then we'll go into the passage. What does the word authentic mean to you? If I say something is authentic, you might have a range of definitions about that. You might say it's truthful or reliable. Or it can mean, ironically, a copy, but a faithful copy. You, know, you, can, you can have an authentic copy of something, can't you? Something which is accurate and faithful to the original, but not the original. So there's a range of meanings. Um, it can mean true to your own spirituality, character, or principles. So he's an authentic guy, or they're being very authentic. In other words, there's no pretense. There's no show or outward um, a mask of what's going on um, unusually or usually going on underneath. It is usually, if not always, a compliment, isn't it? If I was to say, you're, I think you're an authentic person, well, that would mean, actually, or else you could be, but it, I would probably be complimenting you. I, I, I would be saying there's something about you I like. It, you're authentic. I probably mean that you know what you see is what you get, and I like that. So it is always something positive, a desirable thing. And the opposite of it I, would be a range of things, pretense, deception, um, in, in extreme cases perhaps hypocrisy. That would be the, 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 the rank opposite of authenticity, I guess. So the first thing to say about authentic, authenticity, I'm going to have to learn how to say it, aren't I, if I can actually speak about it, authenticity is that we like it. It's um, something that we value in people. Um, you may or may not realize it, but you're all postmoderns. Did you know that? Asnif's shaking her head. You're probably not, actually. <laughs> I, I think postmodern, not modern. She's very modern. There's a range of things about postmodernity, one of which is um, a, a, an assertion that we like authenticity. We don't like a gap between what you say and what you do. I think it's totally false. I've never, I've never lived in an age where there's such a triumph over, um, of style over substance, actually, in almost everything. So I don't think postmodernists are very authentic at all. I think they pretend to like this, this virtue and actually don't like it at all. Um, but there is something that you can see in people that says, I like a guy to say what he means and mean what he says. That's all I'm really trying to say. In the 1950 general election, which I think Winston Churchill won, I think it was the only one he did win, 84% of the electorate voted. 
In 2001, which was Tony Blair's first re-election, 59% voted. Now what's the decline in participation due to? Probably a range of things, but one of them, I suggest, is this growing fed-upness between the gap, uh, the gap between what a politician says and what is actually done on the ground. And people used to put up with that. I'm not saying Tony Blair was less authentic than Winston Churchill. I have no idea. But I think people's tolerance of the gap has decreased. And 59%, that's getting down to local election levels almost. That's amazing. It's, it's crept up a bit, but it's still quite low. And the same is true, I think, of our faith. You know, if it's nominal, if it's superficial, if there's a gap between what we say and what we do, people regard that as inauthentic, justly or not. I mean, it may not be a fair assessment of you or I, but it is a perception. And, and there is another saying, isn't there, that perception is reality. And in one sense, I suppose it is. So, authenticity, we like it. When we don't like it, it's opposite. Authenticity... Sometimes we don't like it when it confronts us, when it confronts the mask that I'm putting up. If you say to me, I don't think you're being authentic, I think, well, perhaps I'd rather not be. I'd rather you saw this pretend me, actually, because that's a lot more comfortable for me. I don't have to think about the things that are going on in my life that are clearly at variance with what I say I believe. And there is a danger, if I say to you, I'm going to talk about authentic faith, inwardly you go, oh, he's just going to have a go at me. He's just going to nag me to do this, do that, do the other, work harder, pray harder, read the Bible more. And, and there's a sort of sinking of the spirit when we hear this word, because we think we're about to get uh, nagged, basically. Well, I actually think... Matching up to a standard is not what this is about. What this is about is a walking faith of, of reality in the hearts and lives of these Thessalonians, Thessalonicans, Thessalonians. That's the name of the book, isn't it? There's a clue. Um, it's about the journey of faith they were on, not the standard they'd reached, or how good or how perfect they were, but the direction in which they were traveling. And I think authentic faith does not mean perfect Christians. Perfection, or a pretense of perfection, is actually a sign of inauthenticity. It's a mask that we build up, a, a show that we put on, because we're afraid of the honesty. Honesty is authentic. So I want to do two things. Explain what I think authenticity really means in the context of knowing God, and encourage you to embrace the idea of being an authentic seeker after God, an authentic Christian, if that's what you want to call it, by being the real you in relationship with the real God. To me, that's what an authentic faith is. Not being a perfect person, but being me, being really me, in relationship to who God really is. And the pretend versions of each get put to one side. The pretend me, which to some extent you see, it's not entirely, you know, 
um, open and transparent what you do standing at the front in front of hundreds of people. The pretend me gets put to one side and the real God gets put in the center. And that pretend God, the one that we make up, the one that we sort of construct to suit us, is also put to one side. You look at the relationship between those two real people and you have real, authentic faith. So what's going on here? Uh, all these letters are written into a context, aren't they? There's, there's something situational going on, what, which Paul is writing about. Paul, famously, converted on the road to Damascus. He then goes into something like a 12-year period of preparation that we know very little about. He doesn't suddenly get off his donkey or his horse or whatever he's riding and walk into the synagogue and start preaching. There's a, there's, a, there's a period of time where Paul disappears off the scene. And it's very important that we know that. There's this period of preparation where he becomes the man that we later read about. He emerges from that period as an energetic church planter and writer. And something like a third of the New Testament is written by Paul. Where he lays himself pretty bare for all to see. Paul is a very authentic man. He's a very open and transparent writer about himself. He embarks on three missionary journeys. And on the second of those, this is about AD 50, so we're a couple of decades after the time of Jesus, he sets up this church in Thessalonica. He is able to spend very little time there because of conflict in the city. Uh, basically, Thessalonica is a major, major centre. Um, it enjoyed massive privilege under, under Rome. So Rome didn't garrison it with any soldiers, and they didn't levy any taxes from the place. They let Thessalonica get on with it and just be more or less autonomous, provided they behave themselves. Well, what, what Romans hated was disruption and um, conflict. So Paul goes there, preaches the gospel in the synagogue, converts some of the Jews there, and also a lot of the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles that live in this city. As a result of that, the Jews get very, very angry with him and start a riot, blaming it on him. So he's basically put in the center stage as being the cause of this disruption. He knows, Paul knows, that the city isn't going to tolerate this because otherwise they're going to get the, the annoyance of Rome and lose all their freedoms. So he has to leave. The point of all that is that the Thessalonican church is immediately fatherless. It's left without the person who set it up. They have no mature leaders no in-depth teaching they haven't been taught what all the jargon means, what all the words mean and how to be a proper Christian they are left with a few um, inherent leaders of their own and Jesus the idea and person of Jesus so Paul is very worried about this and that's why he sends Timothy back his friend to go and see how they're getting on and then writes letters to them. And what we have are those two correspondents, 1 Thessalonians and, cunningly enough, 2 Thessalonians, written a couple of years later. 
And these letters are Paul's response to Timothy's report of what's going on in this place. And rather unusually amongst the letters, it's full of praise. It's very, very positive. Paul is overjoyed at what he hears about how these Christians, without a father, in the, in the priestly sense, without, without a leader to guide them, how faithful and authentic they have been. And in the passage that Polly read, you'll, you'll um, remember those last couple of words. Um, it says here, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. We don't need to say anything about it, because they report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their reputation had spread because of their authenticity. So three things now. Authenticity first is a journey of faith. Remember the real you and the real God? It's an ongoing journey of faith. If you flick to 2 Thessalonians, which is written a couple of years later, and you'll just read the the opening few verses, it says, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, and so on. It says, we always give thanks to God for you, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love of all of you for one another is increasing. What Paul loves about them is that they're on a faithful journey with God. Not that they're perfect. Not that they've got everything right. If you read the rest of Thessalonians, you'll find out that they're not. Um, Chapter 4, they're still learning about sexual ethics. There's clearly things going on there which you wouldn't say were compatible with um, mature Christian faith. So Paul instructs them about it. But he doesn't rob him of his joy for them because he can see them moving forward in faith. They don't understand all the full details about doctrine, resurrection and hope. Again, chapter 4. They're confused about when Jesus is coming back and what that's all about. Some of them um, were lazy. They hadn't taken on the proper ethic of work, um, which, which you expect amongst Christian people. They weren't respecting the church leadership. Some were repressing prophecy and gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a normal group of people. Flawed. They're not perfect. They're not saints. They are not holy Joes by any stretch of the imagination. What Paul spots in them is something much more important, which we are labelling authenticity. They were the real deal. Despite all of these shortcomings, they were following Christ. They hadn't yet learned how to do that perfectly. And I think that's the mistake we make, you know. Authenticity is not perfection. Authenticity is the journey of faith. But tomorrow, you're two steps further on with Jesus than you were yesterday. You know, those guys are not in Paris yet, are they, those cyclists? They haven't reached that. It's a London to Paris bike ride. So where are they now? I don't know, Bayeux or something. I don't know where they are. But you wouldn't say it wasn't an authentic bike ride because they haven't got there yet. Their, um, their backsides will be telling you it's all too authentic, let me tell you. That's what I do a bit of cycling, not like this. But it's very authentic, I tell you, when you're bike, running a bike that distance. 
It's still an authentic journey. They haven't reached the, the destination yet. But they're very, very much on that journey. A sapling is still an authentic tree, isn't it? But you won't get any fruit out of it yet until it's mature. Authentic is not the same as mature. It's all about the journey that you're on. A little baby is an authentic human being. But you won't get too much conversation or work out of it. It's very authentic. So don't be a feel accused if you haven't been around church very long, if you don't know the Bible inside out, if you don't understand the Christian jargon. In fact, so much of that ends up being an impediment later on. If you've got yourself in an honest relationship with the real God, you are authentic. So authenticity is a journey. Secondly, authenticity shows itself. It manifests itself in real life. It's visible. People can see it. Warts and all, perhaps. But it's visibly at work. There's some things here that you can see. In verse 6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and the Lord. It became clear by the way they were trying to live that they were copying Jesus. And remember I said about authentic copies. They were not Jesus, but they were authentic copies of him. They were imitators of him. They lived the way that he taught and lived and demonstrated, or tried to. And that was what spread their reputation around the region. People talked about that. Why did they talk about it? Because it must have been very, very different to the spirit of the age and the way people lived fashionably. So authenticity shows itself usually in contrast to what's going on around us in society. Almost always the spirit of the age and the spirit are usually not the same. And Paul's joy is great because the people have decided to copy Jesus via the example that Paul and Silas had showed them. They were imitators of the Lord. They hadn't yet learned the jargon. They hadn't learned what salvation and sanctification and justification meant and the difference between them. But they knew in whom they believed and it made a difference to whom they followed and what their lives looked like as a result. I read a simple one-liner in one of those email devotionals that, that, that one gets. And it simply said this. It says, we become the one we gaze upon. We become the one we gaze upon. It's not a universal truth. If I gaze on Chris, I will not become Chris. I probably won't even resemble him. But when you gaze upon Jesus, it is true. Because that's what he wants to do in your life. He changes you. It's a supernatural thing, not a natural thing. The second thing that became visible, well firstly their following of Jesus and their emulation of his lifestyle, was this, verse 9. They had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Now instantly we say that's nothing to do with me because I don't worship little wooden statues. And never have. And you probably don't. That's true. But i tell you what we do worship, all of us, from time to time subconsciously, are the value systems and the powers 
of this world, the structures and the um, the ways in which that take, leers us in, squeezes us dry and spits us out. We're all part of that unless we choose not to be. And we gaze upon those things if we're not careful. And we become like them. And those are the idols that we need to turn away from, probably on a daily basis. Such is their attraction. The spirit of the age today is idolatry. The worship of material things, of grading people into winners and losers. It's style over substance, whatever the postmodernists say. Everywhere I look, um, I think that's true. The spirit of material consumption. Um, If you guys don't start consuming a bit more, this recession is going to last a very long time. That's the fact that we're told. This is a credit card-led recovery, apparently. Worshipping the God of image and looking good as defined by somebody else. I know what my idols are and they are the biggest challenge to my authenticity by far and I need need to think about that and it's not as easy as it sounds because it's risky what Paul preached meant that the old certainties had gone the new truth was here to challenge people and it meant abandoning what they'd had before. And that may mean leaving community and forming a new one. It was costly. There will be riots in your life. Disruption. Family, friends, colleagues will feel left, maybe even betrayed sometimes. Disrupted in their own cozy view of life. And actually being a Christian sometimes is a, almost a walking accusation to some people. Which is why you get such um, accusative reactions sometimes. That's the first two. Or fourth interest is a journey. It's visible. And lastly, it inspires. All of Paul's words in here says we give thanks to God. We're continually mentioning in our prayers. You become an example to everyone. You, the real you, with the real God, can become a life of significance. Not in what you achieve in career terms, although you, you, that may well be true as well. But in terms of your significance to other people who do not yet know God, by seeing in you the authentic faith that you have, the values that that brings to fruition, and desiring it in their own lives. Somebody said, you know, we are, for, for many people, we are the only Bible they will ever read. That's quite a challenging statement, isn't it? But it's speaking into this idea of authenticity. Faith inspires when it's visibly lived out. So long as it remains the truth. When it's an act, it has the opposite effect. Because it breeds cynicism and distrust. And actually, it's better to parade your honest faults and put up a mask of pretense because people will see through that that's more authentic I think than the alternative God though wants to take the gritty reality of your actual life and turn it into something fantastic for the inspiration of other people 
And everything we do in this church is geared towards that. Let me finish. Can I ask the the, um, worship team to come back up? This is a real story. It's not um, a bit of theology. It's a a letter. We are eavesdropping on a conversation. These people were greatly disadvantaged in their faith because their founder had to leave them. They were orphans spiritually. They were persecuted and abandoned by their friends. They were far from perfect morally, ethically. They were neither sinless nor holy. But Paul loved them. They were a massive encouragement to him because they were real, because they were authentic. And their faith had transformed their lives so much that other people were inspired. And two years later, that was still going on. The journey was still being walked. Don't take offense at this, but I'm glad we're not a church of Holy Joes. Maybe you think you are. I hope you're not. I beg you never to become one. Just become the man or woman that God wants you to be authentically and display that for the world to see. And there may be all sorts of reasons why you feel you need to take an intentional step in that direction today. Maybe you've never known Jesus really. Maybe you've never gazed upon the one that deep down you want to become. And if that's you this morning, Chris or I would love to lead you to the Lord. It's possible to be in a church your whole life and not make that decision. And then wonder why there's some, some distance, there's some gap between what I say and what I do. And maybe, maybe you've never really, really met the Lord. Or maybe there's a gap in your faith because you just neglected it that way. And the power of the Spirit is here to inspire you, to re-encourage you to engage on that. Or maybe you want to see the authentic God move in a problem in your life. And ministry is always, always here for you to pray for that.